I'm Dan. And I'm Mike. So welcome to season five, the premiere episode of season five of 15 Minute Film Fanatics. Mike, how crazy is this that we made it to season five? We're so happy. You know, I'll tell you that the show's really progressed. Dan and I have bought microphones. Um, we've invested in the sound. Uh, we've invested in the subscriptions uh, that we have going, you know, that give us access uh, to to movies. And we're really, we're really appreciative of the support. We've always asked for suggestions of movies that we should do. I think last season, three out of our 21 episodes or something like that were directly from viewers. And I'm, I'm hopeful that this season we could get it up to like 50%. There's a couple ways you can support the show. Find out what's going on on Twitter. We always put out what's coming up. We'll take suggestions there. We're, our Twitter handle is at 15minfilm. You can also email us anytime at 15minutefilm at gmail.com. And if you want to, you can throw us a buck or two at Venmo at 15minutefilm. Every single cent is going right back into this. It's going into subscriptions so that we can get cool movies, movies maybe you haven't seen in a while, new equipment, stuff to make the show better. Thanks for staying with us. And we're looking forward to our conversation today about Double Indemnity, Billy Wilder's 1944 adaptation of the novel by James M. Kane. This one is a favorite of mine. Uh, I was on a Billy Wilder kick a while ago, and so I've seen this movie pretty recently. I'll give you my overall take real quick, which is that it's not necessarily a natural selection to have Billy Wilder do an, an intense drama uh, l like this one. You really think of uh, Billy Wilder, I think, in association with uh, great comedies, romantic comedies, The Apartment. You know, he's he's the heir apparent to Ernst Lubitsch and all the Hollywood rom-com that that comes with. But the amount of tension that he maintains in every scene of those romantic comedies really shines in double indemnity. There's not a slack moment in this movie, just like the pages of James M. Cain's novel, as they get deeper and deeper into each crime and start to formulate future crimes to cover up past crimes. You, it just, everything gets more nauseating, more hellish until it spins totally out of control. I love this movie. So watching it again, like everybody else, I've seen it a bunch of times. That's a great point, Mike, that everything Billy Wilder is good at is, is in Double Indemnity. The same things that make him great for Some Like It Hot and The Apartment and things like that, it, he's, he's, they're all on display here in Double Indemnity. The, the only difference is that the punchlines really go straight for the gut. You know, they, they, there's, real, there's still real punchlines in a tense script like this, but they, but they punch you in a different place. Yeah, and it's got a great last line, just like Some Like It Hot, but we'll save that for the end of the podcast when we talk about the end of the film. My take on watching it again was, yes, the chemistry between them is great, you have to love how she has the anklet on, the ankle bracelet, which means she might as well be wearing a sign that says, I'm available. Well, in the 1995 remake, you know, it would be a toe ring. One thing I wanted to talk about in the beginning, an interesting aspect of the film, I think, is why have it be a flashback confession? Now, the novel's structured that way as well. Um, and Raymond Chandler, of course, was brought in to help, help write the script. Who knew something about pacing um, exciting novels? But I thought to myself, well, why have him dictate the whole thing as, 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 a, as a memorandum to Keys? Well, first, it gives a sense of urgency. It's a great hook, as they say, when he's, when he's getting his cigarettes out in the beginning and why can't he use his one arm? You find out he's been shot later on. Um, and I think that watching it this time and watching Fred McMurray's unbelievably great performance, it's that he's not as slick as he thinks it is. Now, of course, he's not as slick because they get caught or he gets caught, but um, his whole persona of, of saying baby the whole movie and, and lighting the match with his thumb and things like that. 
Um, that's a, that's a veneer because when it comes down to it, he doesn't have to go back into the building up on the 12th floor and, and start the cylinder rolling. It's that he wants to confess to keys. And, and that's kind of what the movie's about. It's about this, this, this urge to, to kind of make things right. You know, Edward G. Robinson is so funny when he talks about the little man, the little man inside of me and watching it, I thought to myself, well, it's kind of funny because Edward G. Robinson is a little man. And the more I thought about it, I, the more I started to think about him, Keys, as kind of the personification of Walter Knapp's conscience. And I'm not going to push this too far, but it's like the angel and the devil sitting on the shoulder. He, it's almost like he cut out Walter Neff's little homunculus of his conscience and had him walk around the office. And, and Neff knows that. He knows, and the viewer knows, that the closer Keys gets to the answer, the more nervous he gets, but the more, the, the more, you know, the more Neff feels bad. Because one thing that really hurts him is when he hears on... Edward G. Robinson's cylinder, I could vouch for him. I've known him for 11 years. He's a good person. And it's kind of interesting that he goes back to confess to him. That's why I, I think that Keyes tries to seduce him onto his team. You know, halfway through uh, the movie, he offers him an out and he says, you know, you're a good sales rep, but if we just put you on a steady salary and you drop the commission, you know, you can work in the office with me and, and you can spot uh, these these wrongdoings. And it's, it's sort of... Um, it's a weirdly conservative movie, and, and I mean that in, in the moral sense, which is that what, what this movie says is you, you can't get away with crime because there's no relativism of that kind of morality. It, com it comes from inside, and w when you violate it, then you find out where the line was. You, think, you would think that in the violation that the line between good and evil would be erased, but it's not. It's it's it exists even more poignantly because now you've stepped over it. You can't uncross it, and you know where it is. So that in their first murder, it's it's obviously motivated by the money. The second murder that he's contemplating, killing Barbara Stanwyck and getting rid of her for good, trying to frame it on somebody else and getting out of town, is just to hold on to what he already has because his, his life is dissolving. There's there's no other impetus behind it except to save his own skin. Yeah. And the viewer is brought along on that journey, you know, because you, you get close, you know, you know, all the dramatic irony is that, you know, when he's in the back of the car and she looks at him, you know, and you're, you're nervous as a viewer for what's going to happen because you kind of get sucked in, you know, when he's on the train trying to imitate Dietrichson, there, there's a lot of moments where you get very, very close to Fred McMurray. A lesser director might try to complicate that or a lesser story might try to complicate that uh, by having a super likable husband. But the best thing that I like about this movie is what a pill that guy is. And and so and so the violation for what are you honking for? <laughs> and so the, the violation that comes from the soul is, is not because he killed somebody that that we would think is is likable. He killed somebody who is, in fact, totally unlikable. Yeah, that is, I thought the same exact thing. And you assume that she's she's lying when she says to him, oh, he hits me all the time. That's what she's trying to get Frederick Murray on her side. Like, well, he must be an awful person. So let's morally justify, you know, me breaking his neck in the passenger seat. But it's just great. Pill is the perfect word for him. All right, I'll see you part two. So welcome back. In part two, we like to talk about our favorite moments. These could be little moments or big moments, and there's a million of them in this film. So Mike, what was yours? Mine is when they invite the guy Jackson uh, from, from Oregon into the office, and he's getting interviewed by the president of the uh, company and Keys to give his side of the story of having seen the guy for the last time. Now, of course, Fred McMurray, is he's the only guy that can, that can put the finger on Fred McMurray. And so you have one of those scenes that I was alluding to in the beginning 
which is you, you could imagine a comedic scenario in which the punchline is recognition and you have to maintain maximum tension. He's got to kind of look at him and say, don't I know you from somewhere? But without giving it all away. And that's just a, a perfect Billy Wilder scenario. But here it's not for a laugh. It's not played for a laugh. It's played for the, the, the falling apart of their entire scheme. And so he, he plays it as long as he possibly can with maximum tension. And again, the, the president of the company is so unbelievably unlikable. The guy, Jackson, is so unlikable. But it's McMurray who's the murderer. And we're entirely on his side, though seduced also uh, by Key's righteousness. It's a very complicated scene, but one that I love. And if you had if you had said to me, I'm not sure Billy Wilder could pull off a movie like this, you know, I would say that that's, that's actually everything that he's good at on screen. Well, that's what's great. You're making me laugh here because it's so funny that Jackson, even on the train, because you're so nervous when Fred McMurray is imitating Dietrichson. He's like, ah, you want a cigar? Oh, where are you from? And he's making all, he's trying to make small talk with them. And, and you're just, first of all, he's not even supposed to be out there. Like that wasn't part of the plan that this guy would be out there. Right. So as a viewer, you're just like, oh, get out of here. Like, just like, but it's just, isn't it strange that we, we find people's social ticks more irritating to us than, than the, the, the idea that this guy's going to get away with murder. Well, the the thing too is that there's a mistake in every murder, which is the is the key to to Key's whole philosophy is that murderers don't actually want to murder, even if they think that they want to get away with it. There's always one loophole that they haven't thought of, and in this case, the guy is the the, the problem. Yeah, and that's why it's so funny when he comes back and he says, don't, when he, like you just mentioned this, when he says, don't I know you? And he's like, oh, I don't think so. Uh, trout fishing. And he, he keeps going to leave, keeps saying other ways he might know him, is that... Y- as a viewer, your stomach is in a knot and you, you're just thinking, get out of here. It's like, get this guy out of the office. And then you pause a minute and like, yes, get him out of the office because he might upset the murder plot that I've been privy to for the last hour. That's a strange space to be in as a viewer. It's it's when the seduction is complete. So my moment is a lot less intense and a lot less morally complicated. My moment is when Walter and Phyllis are in the supermarket pretending they don't know each other, which of course made me think of, here's Mike's um, Sea of Love again, because we did Sea of Love in our maybe our first or second season, right? Um, the hot lovers in the supermarket. What I love about this is that they're in the supermarket bickering about what their next move is in a complicated murder plot. And that woman comes over and says, can you reach this thing up high? And, and Frederick Murray gets it and she goes, the things I want, they always put them up so high. Now, as a tall person, I, I feel for Walter because that's what I do every time I go to the supermarket I say, as I'm getting stuff off of shelves for little old ladies. But what's funny is that why does this scene take place in a supermarket? Like they could meet in a park. They could just talk on two pay phones, right? Why do this? And I think it's funny that it's misplaced domesticity. The idea is that they're going to get this money and go away and be a couple. But now, so so it's almost a mockery that they're in like the baby food aisle or they're in they're with the apricot aisle. And it's a joke about that. You start off almost believing them as a couple because they're horrible in the same way. And not, by the way, not only does Fred McMurray say, yeah, we're going to go through with it. He's thought the whole thing out. You know, he's, you, you, you think it's her, but it's not her. He's a thousand miles ahead of her by the time she's even caught up. And uh, th- th- that, you know, with her, with her sunglasses and her handkerchief on is the moment that they've, they've become literal strangers from one another. So, yeah, I think that there's, there's a kind of poetic 
gesture at what they could have had or what yeah. would have been their fate if they had escaped. But at the same time, it's 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 sad that they're pretending to be strangers, but they are strangers. Yeah, it's great. That's I love what you said about how he's way ahead of her because remember, it's his idea for the train with double indemnity. It's got to be a train. And she, even even Phyllis is looking at him like, what? No, it's got to be a train. They only put this in there as a clause, as a come on to get people to buy the policy. Um, and I, I just think that scene is so funny because you know when I'm in the supermarket with my wife, the biggest bicker we have is whether or not we can get store brand Cheerios or do we have to get real Cheerios? And uh, you know what, what these two are, are bickering about in the supermarket is much different. Hey, welcome back. So in part three, of course, we like to talk about the title, the ending, the key takeaways. Dan, kick it off. So a lot of famous movies have a lot of famous last lines, like nobody's perfect. You know, Louis, this is the beginning of a, of a beautiful friendship. Do you remember the last line of this film? I love you too. Correct, right? It's correct. Is that they're talking. He says, you didn't see him. He was right across the desk from you, closer than that. And then Frederick Murray says, well, I love you too. And I think that's interesting. It's an interesting thing because it's still Walter's uh, ironic persona, but it's not just that. And it occurred to me that there's something interesting going on in the structure of this film, that it is a love triangle setup. And the three people in the triangle are Walter, Phyllis, and Keyes. And it's not exactly a love triangle in the traditional sense, but it's about these three people playing off of each other and, and, and the audience wondering what's going to happen. It's almost like it's a triangle out of like of respect or knowledge or suspicion. And that that's a wonderful thing at the end when he says, I love you too. And that goes back to what I said at the beginning about it, why he confesses to Walter. And there's something also very bizarre there at the end where, um, you know, he's lying there and he's almost practically, you know, Keyes is leaning over him. He's he he's he's looking up at him, and it's like this bizarre, you know, inverted pieta where you know instead of the person who laid down his life for humanity, it's a person who who threw away his life for you know for for an ankle bracelet. So there's a lot going on in the end there that I think makes it just more than just a satisfying conclusion to a mystery. I'll buy that because the the other scene that I was going to choose for my scene it is the scene that you would actually get in a literal love triangle which is where she's trying to sneak out of his apartment and Keyes has made a surprise visit, which of course is also totally Billy Wilder. And it has to do with her exact position behind the door such that he can't see her. And, and of course, just like the other conversation in the office, part of you wants it to end, but part of you wants it to go on forever because it's the ultimate kind of tragic comic tension. And, and of course, if it were him and his two lovers, that would be the perfect scene, which is someone's escaping and someone's coming to pick his brain. Yeah, 100%. So what do you make of the ending? Or what do you make of the triangle of these characters or about the, the I love you too, or the way it ends? The Keys character played by uh, Edward G. Robinson is, I would say, traditional morality. However, I, I would say that there's an interest in the same way that, that you're talking about Fred McMurray's ironic persona, which is you, you would treat that traditional morality with a raised eyebrow. Right, because it's something that's just inherited. Something there, it's not a coincidence. Imagine the movie played, but Keys is a younger guy than uh, than Fred McMurray. It wouldn't work. He's got to he's got to be older. Yes. He's got to be in in some way paternal or avuncular or in some other kind of relation to him that, than younger, because that's where that's the seat of the of traditional morality. And Fred McMurray violates it. He tries to punch his way through it. Uh, to get to some kind of vision of of life that he can have for himself but he finds out as i said in the in the second part that 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 traditional morality is just as valid but he finds it out in the violation and there's yeah. no way to crawl your way back to the other side 
he can't. And he, it's funny because he literally is crawling at the end when he, when he falls in the doorway. And it's a, an avuncular is exactly the right word. That is exactly the right word for what Edward G. Robinson is like in the film. That's why, you know, he never carries around a match. Oh, they always explode in my pockets. His cigars and things like that. He, it wouldn't work if he were the same age or younger than, than Walter. And yeah, he might as well have a string tied around his finger. <laughs> All right. Thanks for listening, everybody. We hope you've enjoyed our conversation about double indemnity. Again, you can follow us on Twitter at 15MINFilm. You can email us at 15MinuteFilm at Gmail, or you can throw us a buck or two at Venmo at 15MinuteFilm, spelled out. Thanks for listening, everybody. We're looking forward to all these new shows. Yeah. The best thing to do, though, is if you enjoyed this, is to go watch that movie because it, it rewards rewatching unlike 90% of movies you'll ever see. And then rewatch The Apartment and listen to our show on that. Bye, everybody. See you next time.